We are on question 101. It's the very simple question, to whom is baptism to be administered? So this is a positive question. Next week we'll look at the flip side, who is baptism not meant for? But this week we simply want to look at what the Bible has to say um, about who are the proper subjects of baptism as it's historically been stated. All right. So question 101, to whom is baptism to be administered? Answer, baptism is to be administered to all those who credibly profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to none other. Right? And to none other. An excellent summary verse for the teaching of the doctrine of New Testament baptism is Acts 8.12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Seems like a fairly innocuous verse in one sense. Someone preached, males and females believed, they were baptized. But if we understand the flow of the Bible, there's something really ra rather radically different that's going on here than used to happen with believers. So let's explore that in this uh, next few moments. Question number one, what does it mean to credibly profess? We don't use the word credibly a lot. Most of you probably can figure out what it means if you, if you don't already know. But a short definition, children, would be to make a believable claim. To make a believable claim. And specifically here, um, about salvation. So to make a credible profession... is to affirm something that appears reliable, trustworthy to someone uh, looking in from the outside. Baptists have historically emphasized personal conversion, the need for regeneration, and the change in beliefs and life necessarily associated with it. Their standard for baptism and church membership is not merely an orthodox set of beliefs and the lack of gross external sin in the life. And to be frank, that's what the standard of membership has been in most state churches. Those are people who are full church members and allowed to come to the table. Someone who affirms some basic orthodoxy and doesn't do anything outwardly too gross. But the Baptist understanding uh, from Scripture is that a credible profession is necessary. And that, that requirement of a credible profession is, is rooted in historic Calvinism. You know, the idea that when salvation comes to men and women, it's not some small change of opinion, it's not self-reformation, but it's a transformation of the human soul by God so radical that it's noticeable by others. 
if you were dead and now you live, that should be noticeable. Salvation really changes a person. It gives him what another man has called a credenda agenda. New things to believe and new things to do. So far-reaching is the change that accompanies genuine salvation that according to Scripture, it's like being raised from the dead or being born again. Sometimes, yes, it comes quietly. Other times, it comes with a sonic boom. But salvation is the difference between, as we said, life and death. And since the change is that fundamental, that sweeping, that thorough, we expect on the testimony of Scripture that there would be evidence to that fact. And because there is evidence, it is reasonable to expect one who claims salvation to be able to make a believable claim. All right? So that's simply what a credible profession means. A believable claim about salvation. Any questions about that? We are often... um, Accused, I don't think this is a bad thing to be accused of, but we are often accused by a certain part of our Reformed brothers and sisters that um, we're looking for perfection here, that, um, that we're not looking for a believable claim, we're looking for regeneration. But Baptists, Christians don't claim to be able to see each other's soul. Only God knows the heart. We don't know the heart. But Jesus teaches us that out of the soul, out of the heart, flow the issues of life. That what's in a man will come out of a man. And so it's reasonable to believe that if a person has been as radically changed as raised from the dead, that we will see him walking around. We will see him talking, moving, breathing, and doing things that living people do, not that dead people do. All right. We do believe that the the rule for baptism is regeneration. But we don't claim to be able to know that infallibly. Um, God gives us the job. He gives the church the job to give a to try to give a valid estimation or belief about it. Is this credible or not? All right. And we as a men's group talked a bunch about that yesterday with some different kind of tough examples. All right. All right, question two. How does a church determine a credible profession? Notice I didn't say how does the one professing Christ determine a credible profession? I didn't say how does the pastor or the board of elders alone determine a credible profession. The question is, how does a church determine a credible profession? And the the short answer is this, by hearing the testimony and observing the life of the professing Christian. This is why when we have people who come to us and they, in the very first week when they visit us, and I've had this happen to me, it happened to me a few months ago, uh, very first time someone visited, they said, we want to become members. Well, I applaud your eagerness 
to follow the apostolic pattern and obey Jesus, but we don't know you, and perhaps more importantly, you don't know us. And so um, we want to hear your testimony, and we want to observe your life, and you, we want you to hear our testimony as a church, and we want you to observe our life. And this should be done with prayer, with discernment, and with love. I have told you before this example, it's, it's just so perfect, I hardly, I don't know how to improve on it. So um, this, this idea is very well exemplified in Pilgrim's Progress. Partway through the story, Christian tries to enter House Beautiful. I'm still waiting for the first time I hear someone uh, start a Reformed Baptist church plant, and they call it House Beautiful Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, hopefully before I die, uh, that will happen. Um, that, of course, is a symbol of the church. And when, when Christian comes to the door of House Beautiful, actually, right before he gets there, he's met by the porter, now, we don't have porters in our life much, except maybe in a very fancy hotel. But in this case, it stands for the pastor. He introduces himself, they, they chat a bit, and, uh, and the porter tells him, um, you need to speak to someone before you can get inside. Does anyone know the name of the fair young damsel, as I think uh, Bunyan describes her? Uh, who meets Christian at the door? David. I believe it's discernment. Yes, it's discernment. The beautiful young woman is named discernment. Well, why would you speak with discernment at the door of the church? Because this is a picture of joining the church, of entering into the communion of the church. This isn't a visit to hear a sermon. <laughs> this, is, this is a picture of church, what we call church membership. Well, the very first person after the pastor that he talks to is a discerning church member. And, and she talks to him for a little while and, and she asks probing questions. And when she's done, she's somewhat satisfied. But what does she say? Come on in. No, she says, you know, I have two other sisters I want you to speak with. And, and so it's a beautiful picture of showing ourselves to each other, of, of displaying love, of getting to know one another. And to, yes, outwardly, but hopefully accurately and genuinely, determining how credible is this person's profession. The church notes of, uh, of what's called today Bunyan Meeting, uh, still in existence, I think, in north-central England. Well, those church records have been printed, and um, I can tell you from reading them more than once, this procedure was rigorously followed in the 16 and 1700s. Um, they weren't rude, they weren't uh, difficult to convince, or at least overly difficult to convince, 
but you had to show them that you were a new person, a new man or a new woman. And you had to be orthodox. And your life had to reflect your words. You had to, we would say, you had to walk the talk. Most importantly, though, even more important than, than Bunyan's opinion about this, are, is the scriptural pattern from the days of the apostles. Acts 2.38 and 41. Peter preached, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There was repentance, there was faith, there was obedience to Jesus Christ in baptism, and there was church membership. There was, a, there was an order there. And in some places, it may be done quicker. In some places, it may take longer. It may be that for different people or different ages or different situations. You know, if you were in the Apostles' Day, um, to name Christ, to go under the waters of Christian baptism was to lose, was to lose everything. It was to be kicked out of the synagogue, uh, probably be pushed out of your home, lose your living. It was to give up literally everything for Jesus Christ. So people didn't uh, become Christians and ask to be baptized and join a church as a status symbol or as something that was cool their friends did and they wanted to do it too. It was a life or death vow. I would expect that there are places in the world today where other than some basic concerns about is this person a spy or the police? <laughs> but if those have been answered, if a person is making a profession of faith, you understand that in China or Iran or Nigeria, Upper Nigeria or many, many other places, it, it's to throw your life away for Jesus. It's, it's not a small thing. And so I wouldn't expect that lengthy, you know, uh, years of catechetical training um, would precede a baptism and membership. But there are places where Christianity is merely cultural. And, um, and for those churches to take a bit more time, to be a bit more careful, um, I don't think is unscriptural. I think it's wise. And we need to give each other, I think, the kind of flexibility um, that the scriptures do leave us. All right? So how does a church determine a credible profession? They get to know the person making the profession. They have them in their home. They hear their testimony. They talk about the things of God. They ask about life. They live life with them and get to know uh, whether or not they speak well of God on Sunday and curse him the rest of the week or whether or not their life is a reasonable uh, equality between those things. Um, another phrase that, that isn't in here but's often used um, when we talk about a credible profession is is that this is done in charity. And this is not a this is not a legal court. You don't have to prove it one hundred and one percent. Because there are remaining uh, sins in all of us None of us would ever enter the church that way. So we, we hear each other's testimony and we observe each other's life and we get to know each other in charity. And so it's, a, it's in the judgment of charity, it's often said, that we accept a person's um, 
profession as credible. Questions about that? This is, this is so um, much a part of historic congregationalism or Baptist church life and, and others. But in today's modern America, church membership is, is, is not understood or believed or practiced. Baptism doesn't relate to that. And a credible profession, because our definition of the gospel is so abominable. <laughs> we often, you know, if you say you love Jesus, well, then you must be a Christian. Oh, it's the Jesus with seven heads and ble No, no. David, did you have a question or a comment? Uh, well, no, I, 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 you actually answered it. Uh, I was going to ask, you know, I'm not asking for like a specific exact percentage, but, um, you know, is, are we really an anomaly or, um, so, I mean, you're, you're saying, is it really that rare for churches here in the States to try to practice a legitimate membership process? Well, I, I think there are many churches that do. It's just that historically, virtually every church did. And my perception, and that's probably all I should say it is, it's not like I've done a million dollar survey of 10,000 churches, you know, and, and come up with, but, but just in speaking with people who come to our church, in speaking to people in their homes and, and other, people don't seem to know anything about this. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say from my own previous experiences, it's not that there wasn't any kind of steps, but they were very, they, it was almost like, a, just check the blocks, sign your name here, you're in. Right. And what was um, really disheartening was uh, they didn't even have to be members very long before they could participate in, like, teaching ministries of the church. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I see. I mean, I, I don't. No, no, nobody can give an exact percentage. I just, you know, I'm just out of some general curiosity. I mean, I mean, because it is. It's sad um, um, that this is not. That this would be um, a surprise. Kind of like, like you said, that the, the people that came to visit um, probably were not in agreement with probably our point of view, or they wouldn't have asked so soon. <laughs> I think lots of people just don't know. You know, I. I wasn't put off by their question. I was actually encouraged because most people who come to us don't actually know, know anything about church membership, right? Um, so for someone to ask, I actually view that as positive. <laughs> That's how bad things have gotten from my perspective. Um, so I'm not unhappy when they ask, but it's kind of like when someone asks to be baptized. Well, we need to talk. Right, we we need to talk about that, um, not because, not because we we hate baptizing people, not because we don't want people to be church members, not because we hate you, not because of any, but it's the most serious vow a human being can conceivably make in their life. It is a pledge toward God to take the name of Jesus Christ on themselves and live according to it. First Peter three nineteen to twenty one. And so we don't we don't do that without some time spent, some thought, some teaching, some making sure there's a real understanding of what you're doing. This isn't about you and that 
and that you believe in Jesus. It's, it, that's not, that, that's 2% of baptism or 5% of baptism. You know, and frankly, it's what follows, not so much what it, what it is at its heart. So we need to, and, and for a person who, who can't be that patient, then, you know, all we can do is, according to our conscience as we, as we understand the Bible, right? And we can wish them well and, and help them to go another way. Let me give you a different kind of example. Um. Uh, this week, the Rodriguez's were back. Uh, last week, they met with some other uh, Presbyterian fellow believers um, and had their first worship service. It's their goal to start a kind of a, a classic, a historic um, Presbyterian, a Reformed Presbyterian church here in town. Well, I am absolutely all for that. Do I wish we agreed on the details of baptism and church membership and could be one? Oh, of course I do. That's the great longing of my heart. But we don't. And instead of stiff-arming them or, or, you know, I, I mean, I, I prayed for them. I asked about it today. How, how did it go? What, you know, what could be improved? They needed hymnals. Well, we gave them or loaned them some of our own old hymnals, Right? <laughs> the ones that weren't falling apart. Um, you know, we wish them well. We we wish there were many more uh, true gospel churches in this town than than there are today. There are too few. Well, I don't know the number, but there are too few. Um, and and that's the kind of that's the way we need to be about these subjects. Not because they're unimportant, um, but but we need to love one another through these through these things. And and we need to go at the pace God's convinced us we, we need to go. Right? You know, you wouldn't expect it, you, you would expect it to be different in, say, a free will Baptist church. You would expect the gospel to be preached, hopefully reasonably decently, somebody to come forward, get saved through a prayer, and 15 minutes later be baptized and join the church. You would expect that because at the heart of their view of salvation is is that public decision that's made. And so if you did it, there's nothing else you need to prove. Now tomorrow you may run off with your neighbor's wife, but that that doesn't prove you never weren't saved. That proves that you can lose your salvation. And hopefully you'll come back next Sunday and get saved again and you can rejoin us. Right? And I'm really not making fun of that. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, Theology, you know, our understanding of these theological subjects impacts how we do church, obviously. How we do worship, how we do all of these things. Yeah. Okay, too much information. Let's go on to question three, sorry. <laughs> um, does this mean that unbelievers are sometimes baptized? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because only God knows the heart, right? First Samuel sixteen seven. The Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we examine the evidence of the professor, even when we're trying to be prayerful and, and lovingly rigorous, discerning, um, we don't see the inner man, we only see the outer man. 
And so we make mistakes. We're fooled. Sometimes the person making the profession is fooled. But the Lord never is fooled. And sometimes, for his own wise and good purposes, he allows false professors to be baptized and join the church. If this happened in the days of the apostles with men like Simon the magician, it's going to happen to us, beloved, and we ought not to be um, so careful to never make a mistake that, that we don't accept true brothers and sisters. We, we are not going to be better at this than they were, right? So the doctrine of believer's baptism and a regenerate church membership, they aren't claims to infallibly know another person's spiritual condition. It's simply our attempt to do the best we can to follow the pattern laid down by Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. So a church, which is to consist only of baptized believers, can be tainted, at least for a time. And, and this is the important part, and this is where we differ from some of our Reformed Pado-Baptist friends. This is a reality, but it is not God's policy. It's the, it's the de jour de facto difference. There's the law... And then there's how it actually works out. Well, we live in a fallen world, and we're still subject to that, even as regenerate men. God's rule is only the regenerate, only the circumcised in heart are part of the true church. But because we can't infallibly ascertain the heart, there are times we will make mistakes. And so the reality won't match the policy. But we don't have any right to change God's rules. See, some argue, well, if you don't know that, then you really shouldn't, you shouldn't care about whether my unregenerate child, but a child of the covenant, you know, is joined to the church. Oh, yes, we do care. <laughs> because the rule we try to live by is God's word in this matter. And we don't believe that it includes in the new covenant the children of believers. So we don't get to change the rule. What we're tasked to do with the keys of the kingdom is as a church, try to make the best informed, loving determination, right? With some people, it's really easy. Um, you know, when the, when the Wagners came to us, um, I didn't, I didn't ask them to wait two years before they applied for membership. I, I had them wait probably as short a time as I've had anybody wait. Because in hearing their testimony and seeing their home and, and spending some time, a good amount of time together, it seemed very obvious these people were real Christians. And when I learned that he'd been a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church and another church in Iowa, you know, I could call people and I could ask and i say, hey, what, do you know this man? Do you know this brother? And and you can get a good report for other people. And, and when people have done that consistently for 15 or 20 years, and they've moved here, you know, they're not here on a vacation, they've moved here, well, then let's, let's proceed, right? Other people, people very young, 
people very old, people with mental defects, people perhaps from a very different uh, segment of Christianity that leads us to believe that while they may be real Christians, this church is very different from what they're used to. And we want there to be peace. We're not judging them. We want them to be happy. In all those kinds of cases, and, and there are many, many more, um, it makes sense, I believe, to be to simply go slower. I don't believe in going slow, um, but, but to be careful. There are others who attend who, because of their work or other things, they can't come every Sunday. Well, again, that makes it harder for people to get to know them and to be able to vote with a clear conscience. So there are all kinds of details, but we need to take those into account because what we're after is a credible profession. All right? And this, this question and answer makes the point that who should be baptized and who is it that makes up the membership of the church? Those two questions are really one question. This is why when people say, well, how are Reformed Baptists different than Reformed Pado Baptists? The fundamental answer is doctrine of the church. Who does the church consist of and who should be baptized? Depending how you answer one will determine how you answer the other and vice versa. All right. I see no raised hands. I see no, I hear no snores. We will go on to question four. Is a credible profession of repentance necessary for baptism? And I want to show you this from the Bible. The answer is, of course, yes. This is shown first in John's baptism. Matthew 3, 2 states that his message was, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What did those who heard and believed that message do? Verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John said to them in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Was everyone who came baptized? No. Those without a credible profession of repentance were not baptized. And the itchy cloth wearing, locust eating, uh, brusque preacher wasn't even nice about it. <laughs> Your brood of vipers come back when you've uh, begin to do works suitable to repentance. When you have a life that proves that your repentance isn't just a religious act, right? That was the fa uh, Pharisees and Sadducees when they came. John denied them baptism because they didn't have evident repentance. And this pattern is repeated all through the New Testament. Peter in Acts 2 said, repent and be baptized. And those who accepted his message were. No more, no less. When Cornelius and his house were baptized in Acts 11, the Jews said, so God has granted even the Gentiles, not faith, although that's true, repentance unto life. Right? Repentance was so tied to baptism that they could infer that if Peter baptized them, they must have credibly professed repentance. So, is credible profession of repentance necessary for baptism? Yes. Question five. Is a credible profession of faith in Christ necessary for baptism? 
Yes. In Corinth, according to Acts 18.9, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him, it says, believed, and what followed? And they were baptized. In the face of much opposition and even threats, these people believed. And on the basis of that credible profession of faith, faith in the face of threat, they were baptized. What if some didn't believe? Well, then they weren't baptized. <laughs> because there is no clear instance in the New Testament of anyone being baptized who did not profess belief in Jesus Christ. Hear the story of the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, 31 to 34. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. The whole house was preached to. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So much for household baptisms of infants. Belief was a necessary requirement for anyone in his family to be baptized. Were there any infants or very, very young children so small that they couldn't yet believe? Well, apparently not, since all the family believed. Or perhaps they just aren't included in the account. But it's the ones who believed who were baptized. Uh, Lydia, another account, says, If you consider me a believer, right? There's the profession of faith. Paul found it credible. And then number six is a credible profession of obedience to Christ necessary for baptism. So now we're, now we're at the point where we've gone beyond words. Profession of repentance, profession of faith, and now is the life lived in some way that would show that you're a true Christian? And of course the answer is yes. A credible profession is necessary. Matthew 28, 19 says that those who were disciples were baptized. That is one who follows Jesus both in his teaching and his moral commands. None were to be baptized until they met the qualification of being a follower of Christ. That is, until they had a believable lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 1, 12-15 shows that to be baptized into someone's name meant you were to be their follower. This is why Paul was glad he hadn't baptized many people. Presumably, the others who were with him in his missionary tours did that. Uh, he was an old, crippled, small uh, man, if the historical accounts of him are right. He would have had a hard time doing that. Well, perhaps that's the reason why others did it so often, and he concentrated on preaching. But he was horrified that the Corinthians were said to be followers of his, or some of them were followers of Peter, or some of them were disciples of Apollos. He says, were you baptized into my name? You see, that's what baptism is. That's being a disciple, a follower, a doer of the teachings of the name you profess. 
This is why Christ must be all to us. We don't give you a Reformed Baptist baptism. You are given in our Christian church a a baptism into the name of Jesus Christ or into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are not my disciples in that sense. You are not the church's disciples. You are followers of Christ. You are Christians. And so you receive Christian baptism if your life reflects that. The earlier generations of Christians were often much more picky about this than we are. You know, if you lived in Bristol in the 1640s through 90s, it's a fairly small city. You would have known each other. You would have seen seen each other regularly through the week. And so if you were to come to Broadmead, Bristol, or Pathay Baptist Church with the other several hundred people that would be there, I mean, people would know you. And they would know what your carriage was like. That is, what your lifestyle, what your walk was like. And there are a number of accounts where people would make a profession of faith and the pastors would recommend them to the congregation and, and two ladies would, would vote no. Now back in those days, in that church, Broadmead, every vote had to be unanimous. So these two ladies were asked, what's the problem? Well, we know this person who claims to be a sister, and we know this and this and this to be true about her. Or we know this used to be true about her. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like meddling and putting your nose in places it doesn't belong, but that's more modern individualism than, I think, than true Christianity. It was absolutely right for them to defend the purity of the church by saying, we know her well and we're not convinced. Now, in some cases, uh, the person never joined. In other cases, the, the, the men or the women who were concerned were, were told by the church, look, you spend time. You get this worked out. See if they've changed or see if your minds ought to change. And usually what happened was, in a later vote, they would unanimously vote the person in. But they took discipline, entrance into and exit from the church, very, very seriously. Again, something that in our nation is almost unheard of, right? I mean, when was the last time any of you were in an excommunication church business meeting? Yeah. Been a few weeks, hasn't it? Right. Now, we try to be careful Hopefully we don't have, you know, 25 of our 50 plus members who need to be disciplined out. But but there are times that has to happen, right? Questions about these three before we go to the last two questions? Question seven. May only men be baptized? Wow, that's a loaded question. The Bible says no. Men and women are to be baptized. 
all of those regardless of gender who can give a credible profession should be baptized. And that's why I quoted you the Acts 8.12 verse, because it explicitly says men and women. And those two words are precise in the Greek. It's an adult male and an adult female. They were not children. They were not um, some other combination of genders or ideas or whatever. These were adult males and adult females. Now, this is not the only verse about who gets baptized in the Bible, but it is illustrative that females were baptized. It clearly displays that. Both may receive the sign of the new covenant. Unlike the old covenant, where only males could receive the sign, in the new covenant, both men and women may receive it. There are several lessons here. One, this is why we do not use the Old Testament to help determine who should be baptized in the New Testament. Sacraments or ordinances or worship rituals go with covenants. Screw that truth into your head. Do not let it out. All right? You are not liable before God if you don't do certain Old Testament washings or sacrifices or keep certain feasts or do the hundred other things that Moses required. And they don't fall short of heaven, those who came before the time of Christ, because they were never baptized and never participated in the Lord's Supper, right? Different sacraments, different signs, different seals, different ordinances for different covenants. This should make it plain why we don't let the Abrahamic covenant define who should be baptized. That covenant is done, completed in Jesus, it is fulfilled in him. So there's a relationship of our covenant to that. There's even a relationship between baptism and circumcision, the two signs that show entrance in to the people of God. But they are not the same sign. They are not the identical sacrament. They are related, but they are different. And we must let each covenant define those ceremonies, those actions, those recipients by itself, right? So that's the first thing. Uh, we don't use the Old Testament as a basis for who to baptize. If we did that, we would only baptize males. Clearly that has changed in the New Covenant. Secondly, um, This is a good example of how we should always use clear, specific New Testament scriptures whenever we can to interpret the less clear. This is, of course, one of the fundamentals of Bible interpretation. Things that are more difficult are interpreted by things that are plainer. Um, and, and Acts 8 is plain. 
We don't need to wonder about whether or not women can be baptized. Um, finally, This shows what has historically been called adult baptism. Now, I'm not going to define adult because I don't think I can. I think churches can do that based in different times and places. But baptism is only shown in the New Testament not for infants, but for adults. All right? Well, let's go to question eight. Should anyone without a credible profession be baptized? Of course, the answer is no. Faith, repentance, and obedience are the New Testament requirement. And every New Testament example affirms this. Are there some places that are unclear? Yes. But there are no certain examples of even a single person being baptized without these things. There is no teaching to baptize any without these. There's no command to do that. And by the way, um, all of our Reformed Pado baptist friends would completely agree with this. They don't believe that there is a command in the New Testament to baptize infants, and they do not believe, most of them anyway, do not believe there are any clear examples in the New Testament of baptizing infants. That's not something we actually have an argument over. We, we predominantly agree about that. Right? Now that might surprise you, but that's... Historically, that's the case. So, someone who has right doctrine but doesn't have a righteous life isn't a candidate for New Testament baptism. Or if they have a righteous life but they don't believe in the Trinity, they don't believe Jesus is God, they're not a candidate for baptism. Blood relationship to a believer is no ground for new covenant baptism. Faith professed for an infant or some other mentally incapacitated person is not sufficient. Proxy faith isn't a New Testament category, faith for someone else. John 1 effectively denies that. Uh, there's no stand-in repentance. There's no substitute obedience. Each one must give an account. That's the scriptural principle in the New Covenant. All right? This, of course, will lead us to the next question, which is, um, who shouldn't baptism be administered to? Uh, but that'll be question 102 in, Lord willing, two weeks. Any final questions or, or comments, thoughts? Okay, well, thank you all for your attention.